He says, sales is not about driving revenue. Sales is about driving value. Revenue is the outcome. So if you drive value with a customer as a salesperson, the outcome of doing that is revenue. If you drive value as a success person, bringing skills, expertise, knowledge, the outcome of that is revenue. Hey guys, welcome back to the Back Self Show. This week on the show, we have Rav Daliwa, who is a investor and venture partner over at Crane Ventures. He has had the most incredible career. Not only that, he built his own Peloton. Sorry, he built his own Peloton-style bike because you can't build your own Peloton because that'd be some brand sponsorship. But he's going to talk about it more than I am, and we'll come to that later. But Rav, before we get into that, imagine we're on a first date. Tell me who you are and what you do. Well, Tom, uh, firstly, thanks for the brilliant introduction and, and thanks for inviting me on to, to chat with you today. So we're on a first date. Who am I, what do I do? So my name's Rav Dalliwal. I think I best describe myself as a recovering software executive. Uh, so I spent about 20 years working in, in enterprise software. I've had the pleasure of living in lots of really interesting places. I went to uh, Australia for a six week holiday and stayed for 10 years uh, wow. and ended up becoming a naturalized Australian, a fair income Aussie bloke, and uh, worked all over Asia Pacific. Uh, I worked for IBM at the time, well, or a startup that was was um, acquired by IBM. Had amazing, wonderful experiences. Moved back to Europe uh, about 2008, uh, still with IBM, and then, then began this crazy career journey of working in this sort of SaaS cloud thing, which apparently was all the rage. I thought it was a fad. I didn't think it would ever catch on, but you know, there you go. Uh, <laughs> just you know, obviously, being facetious. Uh, and then just through dint of um, luck and circumstance, ended up working for three or four really early stage SaaS companies that went on to do uh, sort of big things. So uh, yeah, it's the last 20 years, 10 of it overseas, uh, just over 10 back in the UK. Uh, I met my wife, who is Swedish, so my wife isn't even from the UK. Uh, I met my wife about seven years ago, uh, and we're sort of firmly ensconced in in West London now. Uh, after a run of um, one company that got acquired, two went public. As you can imagine, that's pretty exhausting, seven or eight years. Yeah. And um, I just got the opportunity from knowing the team at Crane, who had actually tried to poach me for one of their companies. And uh, it was absolutely a tremendous company. I just wasn't ready to move at the time, but I was so impressed with the people that I met at Crane and kind of kept in touch with them. And then one year they said, hey, look, we run this event every year for founders uh, and uh, you know it's a big deal and no one really understands what you do around this whole customer success thing. And so would you be willing to come in to speak for 20 minutes on the subject? And I went, sure. So I turned up at the event, it was a couple of hundred people, 20 minutes turned into 45 minutes, 45 minutes turned into an hour and a bit. There was just lots of questions. Uh, and then after I decided to take a break, uh, just decompress for a few months after you know, this crazy startup ride. Uh, Krishna is one of the general partners and Scott, the other general partner, were like, what are you up to? Do you want to help us out on this thing? We were wondering if you'd go and talk to this person. And so, you know, I just kind of ended up just to keep the brain ticking over, uh, helping the guys out on some stuff. And that developed into a more formalized relationship. And I've been working for the, with the team now as a venture partner for nearly two years. Wow, amazing, what a ride. So let's go straight into a couple of questions then. So. All right, let's uh, let's drop some of those big name bombs, okay? What are those? What are those three businesses that you took to exit and to IPO? Well, okay, so I can't profess to have been uh, uh, the person who took the business to exit. I'm, I will. 
I'm saying you are, Rav. All right. <laughs> I joined a company called Yammer, um, which was um, really an, what described itself as an enterprise social network. So back in the mid 2000s, you know, Facebook had started this massive acceleration in growth. And the idea behind Yammer was that we would be the enterprise equivalent, an enterprise social network. If people can communicate effectively this way personally, maybe there's merit to doing that, uh, you know, in, um, uh, in the corporate environment. And we'll come on and talk about my experience of Slack a bit later, but people sort of forget Yammer was the Slack of its day. It was immensely popular. It was viral freemium growth. You know, you, you, you could use the product for free. It started to grow and we built a pretty uh, successful business. Uh, and like you do when you build a successful business, people sometimes want to acquire you. And so we were acquired by, by Microsoft. And I have to say, having been acquired previously earlier in my career, I was very nervous, but actually the acquisition by Microsoft was great. It was a, a, a really positive experience. I spent a couple of years in the Microsoft business, embedding the team, embedding the function, helping them to think through customer success. They now have, I think, Microsoft, I think is one of the, if not the largest success function in enterprise software. Uh, and that was a great run. But what I recognized was I had been 10 years at IBM in a big company and I felt like, oh, I've got one more startup in me. Like, I think I can do this startup thing one more time. And what I wanted to actually do was to really develop my skills and experience as a people leader. Like, I've been managing people, but I recognized that was a muscle I needed to exercise a bit more uh, and get really proficient at. And an opportunity came up at Zendesk just completely out of the blue obviously great company on a great trajectory, Mikkel, terrific founder. I'd had a strong support background in my previous career. And they said, well, we don't have a team here, so we need you to come help us figure this out and build a whole team. And so that was kind of like, oh, wow, okay, that feels like not only another great opportunity to scratch that startup itch, but also learn and develop as a leader. Uh, I had a wonderful time working there, probably just one of the most amazing teams, uh, groups of people I've ever worked with. Completely happy, completely content. And then the CMO of Zendesk left and became the CMO of this little company called Slack, which was still a little company. And he and took some of his team with him and they had all known about my Yammer experience. So they kept kind of reaching out periodically saying, hey, Rav, did you have this problem at Yammer? Or we're trying to think this thing through and blah, blah, blah. And you know, I was more than happy to help, got on quite a few calls with the guys, met them when I was in San Francisco and, um, it got to the point where after about six or seven months, I sort of jokingly said, I think I talked to you guys more than I talked to the guys at Zendesk. You should probably start paying me for this, right? And this was like a completely flippant remark. And they go, well, would you be up for that? Are you, you, you kind of serious? <laughs> and I was like, okay. Uh, and then that proceeded like another seven months of pretty much being interviewed by every single person in the company, it felt like. Uh, and what I was really, actually what was happening was, I don't think I was really being interviewed. I think they were asking me to help them think through really tangible problems they were having. How do you deploy to 10,000 people? What do you need to do X, Y, Z? And, um, and eventually then I recognized there was an opportunity there not to just develop myself, but was to you know build a whole new part of the business and that didn't exist. And, um, and that was really a tremendous run there. And obviously the, companies, you know, had a really good uh, public exit. It's now about to uh, be part of the Salesforce family. After being on that run, I was like, well, I don't want to go to another big company yet. 
maybe when I'm in my 60s, that might be. I don't want to do another startup. I'm exhausted. What do I want to do? Uh, and the reason I married my wife is she's much smarter than me. And she said, you should just take some time off. And I was like, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. So, yeah. uh, and it was during that time, I got a bit of an opportunity to think, well, what do I really want? I actually want variety. I want to get exposure to lots of different companies and different people and founders and at different stages. Uh, I'm an ex-engineer, so technology really appeals to me. I wanted to uh, have that, that variety. I wanted to get exposure to lots of different types of tech. When you're in a startup, you're really focused on your product, your sector, your industry, you live and breathe it. It can be quite narrowing. So I wanted a breadth of exposure. And then interestingly, what that time helped me figure out was what I really wanted was more influence. Um, I'd been lucky, I joined companies early and I had a lot of influence in the early days and then the company gets bigger and more systematized, more people, more traditional thinking and you are, well, your influence, you still have it, but it gets harder. You have to push the, I always say the boulder gets bigger and the hills get steeper. So what's better than having more influence than investing in companies and especially at an early stage where they're open to new ideas and help. And so that's why moving into the, the venture world was really appealing because it just gives me all those things. And, you know, I like to learn. So being at this stage in life and career, having the opportunity to learn a whole new industry and uh, to learn all the stuff that comes with being an investor. I've personally now invested in a bunch of companies myself. That's been really exciting thing for me nothing, nothing I'm going to be 50 this year and I never expected at 50 in my career to be learning new things so I think uh, I couldn't be happier it's the way it's all worked out amazing amazing what a great story okay elephant in the room what the fuck is customer success <laughs> good question so if you were to listen to any sort of talks I've done or read anything I've written one of my key refrains is the problem is it's got no definition and the problem with not having any definition, people either ascribe some meaning to it that they think it is. Uh, and this is one thing I'm trying to do outside of my investment work is work with the success community to like come up with a definition. But essentially what it is, is any function in a software company that is focusing on speeding up the time it takes for the customer to get value for your product, right? So you can sell a product, you can give it to a customer and then you can just leave them to their own devices if you want to. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. The challenge with that is if it takes them five, six, seven months in a one year subscription to figure out the true value of your product, you then risk uh, a lot of revenue there because you haven't got a lot of window then to talk to them about either renewing or growing with you. So the whole idea is you have this function who bring their expertise. That expertise could be product, it could be technical, it could be change management, it could be any, you know, it could be regulatory depending on the solution, but they're bringing a set of skills to help the customer shorten the gap before uh, to seeing value so that you then have opportunities to talk to them about what more you could be doing together. That is in a, in a, in a sense how I like to think about it. It's a value acceleration function. The important thing to remember is you're not just trying to add value to the company, your customers, you're trying to add value to your own bottom line as well. And I think that often gets missed in the equation. You're trying to accelerate value for customers so you can add to the bottom line of your own company. 
I think it's really interesting because like typically like you know I mean I come from a sales background okay and so you know there's there's hunters and there's farmers right you've got your new business guys and you've got your account managers and you just kind of like you know I'd bucket that in the 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 customer success area but actually it's not yeah kind of not that all you're doing there is you're just account manager and what they're doing is they're just trying to find ways to upsell that customer I think what you're saying is like there's there's a speech if you if you make your customers super happy and they're taking value from your products they're more likely to spend more money. Correct. Sure. More, you, you earn the right to talk to them about doing more, right? So that that that's the thing. But it, it's an interesting one because I I consider myself a sales leader more than a success leader. Really, I've had quite frankly eye-watering revenue targets that even most sales leaders would, you know, tremble at in my career. I've always thought about the role as this is a role focused on growth. It's not a post-sales role. It's a continuation of the sales cycle. We're here to help the customer grow. And in a way, you can think about it. Um, and Mark Roberge, who was the CRO at HubSpot, has a really brilliant way of describing this. He says, sales is not about driving revenue. Sales is about driving value. Revenue is the outcome. So if you drive value with a customer as a salesperson, the outcome of doing that is revenue. If you drive value as a success person, bringing skills, expertise, knowledge, the outcome of that is revenue. So when I meet success practitioners, goes, well, I'm not in sales. I don't want to be in sales. I said, yes, you are. You're in a software company. We're all in sales. Everybody's in sales, right? You're just pulling a slightly different lever from your commercial colleague who sold a deal. You're pulling a product lever. They're pulling a commercial lever, right? But you need to work together because, and this is a thing I've never understood when I talk to founders, I say, okay, you sell the thing, who sells the thing? Oh, we have a technical salesperson and the salesperson. What that happens then? Well, then we give it to a customer success person. Uh, and what do you want that person to do? Oh, well, I want them to deploy the software, onboard it, teach customer how to use it, uh, get them to see value quickly, negotiate the renewal, then do the upsell, blah, blah, blah. I go, wow, I don't, I don't know anyone who can do that. How come it took two people to sell and one person to do everything else, right? And so what, is, what I do is I spend a lot of time helping them think through how to mirror the roles that do the initial sale with the people who are gonna grow the accounts and really to stop thinking in pre and post sales terms, you sell subscription, the sale never ended. You just made the first one. So how do we then build an engine that helps you get the next one, the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And I'm actually uh, about to finish an article that's gonna go up on the new Crane blog this week on this very topic. And I'm happy to give you a little bit of a preview. The yeah. challenge with sales is it, it all, you know, if you looked at a modern SaaS startup, you came from sales in SaaS, right? If you looked at how the sales team there is organized and compared it to a company from 25 years ago that sold on-premises software that was perpetually licensed, the sales teams would be structured almost exactly the same. The activities right. they did would be almost exactly the same. The incentive structure would almost be exactly the same. However, the difference is in the 25 years ago, we got 80% of the customer's money up front and they were making a capital expenditure. They had to spend on servers, racks, data centers, admin, backup. So the cost in them not doing it or moving was too great. They had already sunk too much money into it. They had to keep going. In the SaaS world, there's no capital expenditure. It's an operating expenditure. And if they don't get value quickly, they can go any multitude of other places, right? Yet we've got a sales structure and an incentive structure for one world trying to supplant it in, in, in the current world. Now, the innovation came from people like Salesforce, which they recognized, 
hey, we're doing sales the same way, but we're getting eight, nine percent gross churn. We're going to die as a company if this happens. Let's create an organization to make sure the customer is successful. And that was the correct impulse. But what that's done is created a, uh, unintentionally what that's done. It's created a template for contemporary SaaS companies that says, oh, right, sales works one way. It's always worked that way. And I just have to bolt this thing on at the end and then I will be as successful as Salesforce. And that is not necessarily always the case because Salesforce is a giant multi-product company. Their NRR is huge, but that's because they have many, many different capabilities and things to sell customers. If you're trying to replicate the Salesforce model as a single product company or as an early stage company, by thinking I've got the whole thing sorted out, I've got traditional sales and success, uh, you're likely to come a cropper in five or six years because you haven't built a motion for continuous selling. You focused on inbound outbound, but not continuous. So that's kind of something that, um, uh, you know, so the article should be published a bit later this week, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of a preview of some of the, a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the conversations that I have yeah. with founders, a lot of the conversations I have with prospective founders. What do you, what have you learned for your customers? How do you expand? How do you sell? What's the change impact of your product? What's the scope of that impact? You know, these are all things people tend not to think about because just prior to recording, you were saying that, you know, you get bombarded as a founder with all this terminology, product market fit, go to market fit, LTV to CAC and all this stuff. And it's like, do you understand the value of your products? Do you understand how people can get value to that product quickly? And do you understand how to sell more to them? <laughs> you know, those are really what we're trying to help people figure out. That's the really thing nice. is that's contextual. It's highly contextual depending on your product, service, and customer. And that's why your question, you know, what, what the F is customer success makes complete sense because it varies from business to business. I was being mildly facetious because I'm a huge fan of customer success, but I get what you mean. Yeah. So, okay. So what are, what are some of the best practices? So what's like, so say for example, because we, we specialize in early stage here, right? And customer success, like you're an enterprise specialist, but it's not just about B2B, it's B2C as well. Anyone who's paying a subscription in a tech business or anyone who's selling anything needs to be focused on customer success. So what are some of the best practices that you can put in place is the first question. My second question, which comes in a second, is like, when? You know, like, when do you... Yeah, so first of all, so what, what are the best practices you can put in place? Or what are the most important questions that a founder should be asking or, you know, a founder and his team should be asking at the very... Yeah, and what should they be asking? Well, I think I'll answer the second part first because that's the quickest one to answer. The question of when is right from the very beginning of the company because yeah. even if you don't have customers, you're on a journey to product market fit. So your proto CS people, even if it's someone from product, it doesn't have to be a CS person. The name of the game is how do I test these product hypotheses as quickly as possible? So if you haven't got anyone working with customers to figure that out, you're not going to get to product market fit in any meaningful time, or you may never get to it. So that's why, you know, in those early stages, whether you call it CS or not, you've got to have someone who is working with either design partners, prospective customers, or your early adopters to, to understand what works, what doesn't work, what are the kinks in deployment, what are the things stopping people realizing value quickly, so you can bake that into the product. Once you've kind of achieved or get caught, I don't really think you ever really get product market fit. You get product market fit probably in a segment of customer. And then you, as you get more different types of customers, you have to keep iterating on it. But yeah. as you kind of get close to it and you start to think, well, okay, we know enough now to start building go-to-market fit commercial organization. 
then you do really need people who work with sales uh, and then uh, continue working on with a customer to say, right, my job is to make sure that you get value from the product in 30, 60, 90 days, not seven months, eight months, nine, 10 months. And then as you scale that and the commercial organization up together and you systematize a lot of that and you productize some of it and you actually, in the same way you have a sales motion, you've developed a success motion, then you can orient the team on revenue targets. You can say, well, now I want you to have a net revenue retention target because if we're investing in CS to work with customers, we want to see those customers grow and have an NRR 110, 120. And I think NRR should be the North Star metric for any uh, any mature sort of CS function. So that's kind of when um, and what it might look like. In terms of what, uh, I would say the first and foremost goes back to our early, your earlier question, Tom, which is success is contextual. What it takes to make a customer successful in one company is different from another. So the first thing any good success function should have is a very short, crisp elevator pitch of its mission. And that mission will be, this is how we add value to the customer, and this is how we add value to our bottom line. Because if you don't have that, the rest of the organization will not understand what you do. And the danger of that is twofold. One, if they don't understand what you do, they won't ascribe any value to it, and therefore you're never going to get any funding and investment, and customers will suffer. The other one is anything that does not fit or is not wanted anywhere else in the organization will just get pushed to the customer success team. And they'll become what I end up calling the everything department. They'll just end up owning stuff that just doesn't fit. And then what will happen if you've hired the right sort of profile of person, that person is going to work really hard to find manual workarounds and all sorts of clever, probably laborious things to sort out all these problems that don't have an owner anywhere. And that will affect your product market fit because they're probably obscuring a whole bunch of issues in the product that you should really know about. It's probably going to be obscuring uh, marketing. You know, your marketing messages might not be working or your ideal customer profile might be wrong or just the selling, how you're selling may not be working. And you may be masking that by having this group at the end who's just trying to take care of all those problems. And around that, if you don't have that elevator pitch, what tends to happen in my experience is, and this is partly how we name things, and I would advocate we stop calling customer success, customer success, we should call it growth or something else. You can unconsciously create the idea in everybody else's head in the, in the company that making customers successful is not my job, it's the job of this team that works over here, <laughs> right? And so a lot of what I end up spending time with founders is how do you, do an, how do you create an incentive structure whereby everyone has part of their incentive and compensation focused around long-term customer value, not just the CS team. So first and foremost, have a very clear definition of the value that you add to the customer in your own company. For example, you know, at Acme, we are digital adoption change management specialists, and we add to the, custom, the company's NRR, right? Have a crisp definition. The related to that then is have a material target. So we talked about those different stages a startup might go through. One stage, product market fit's more important. Another one, go to market fit and then revenue. Make sure the team has a North Star target related to what's important to the company at the time. So whether it's brand, in the early stages, we're doing founder-led sales, inbound sales. We've just got to build brand awareness, orient the team on MPS then, right? Later, We've understand how to sell. We've got great brand awareness. We've got to drive more top of funnel. 
orient them on uh, references and referenceability. Uh, and then finally on revenue, right? NRR, right? The third thing I would always recommend is make sure the team has access to data and signals. So specifically product usage telemetry, make sure they've got an easy way to consume how people are using the product. You know, what, not just what login rates are, but what features are being consumed, how people are using the product, because what you need to do is come up with what are the leading indicators of product usage that indicate customers being successful? Because that's what you want to drive the team towards. How do we get a customer to this sort of usage profile in the shortest amount of time possible? And in order to do that, you need data. You also need that data to be proactive. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. There's two, there's two really salient questions I want to ask you. One, just for our audience, can you um, explain in the simplest possible terms what net revenue retention is, NRR? Yeah, so essentially what that says is for a given period of time uh, and a given set of customers, how much of their revenue have we retained and how much have we grown them by? That's fundamentally what it is. So ideally, you want that number to be over 100% because if you have, uh, let's say you've got 100 customers and you retain all 100 of them, brilliant, but a bunch of them said, yeah, I'm going to move to a lower plan or I'm going to just renew at less licenses. You've saved all the customers, you've got them all, but your net revenue's actually gone down. So let's say, you know, I had hundred customers at a million dollars. I renewed like 12 months later, all hundred of them, but now I've only got 800,000. So, uh, well, essentially it's kind of like in inflation, if you like, you know, if you get a pay rise, but it's less than inflation, you're actually worse off, even though yeah. you've got more money, right? So it's essentially that's what net revenue retention is. It's over a given period of time out of a set of customers, how much of their revenue that we already had did we retain and how much did we grow them by? Uh, you know, a world-class number is 140%, 140, 145%. That's world-class. If you can hit that kind of number, you're in the top, you know, 1%. Uh, you know, 120, 130 is superb. You know, if you can get into the sort of 105, 110, you're doing very, very well. Like you're, 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 what you're demonstrating to investors or public markets is not only can we sell, people want to do more with us. That's incredible as well. I think it's really good because it definitely hides vanity. You can be like, wow, you know, I've retained 100% of my, yeah, my churn rate's really low. It was like, yeah, but your revenue's dropping, right? Do you know what I mean? So logo churn rate is high. That's great. But if your revenue of those same logos is dropping, that, because of the cost of customer acquisition, that will eventually yeah. kill you. Because what that really means in, in, in very simplistic terms is for every dollar that you lose, you're going to probably have to find three or four more dollars to make up for that $1 loss before you even start gaining. Yeah, yeah exactly right. That's really good. It's a really great way to look at it. It's a very telling metric. Fourth comes in is on that payback period. So investors are always talking about, well, what's your LTV to CAC ratio and what's the payback period? You ideally want the cost of acquisition of that customer to pay back preferably within 12 months or shorter. And so what CS can really do is act as a force multiplier there and go, well, if we can figure out a standardized way to deploy these customers, get them onboarded, do the change management, make the product sticky, and we can do that in 90 days, wow, our payback period suddenly become three months, you know, not 12. 
right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, that's yeah. why they're as an acceleration function, um, you know, they're really important. Um, I think we got, we had a little, obviously a little bit of a technical issue and we were talking about data and signals. One of the reasons why it's important for a team to have data is you want them to be proactive, not reactive. You want them to be able to come in every day and look at their customers and go, oh, usage dropped by 5% here. I'm going to get on the phone. I noticed that usage has dropped. Is everything okay? You don't want to be waiting to find mm -hmm. that out mm -hmm. at renewal. And I think the, the two most important things that a good CS function should have is proper integration into the sales cycle. So, uh, and, and, and related to that, the second thing is being aligned with sales in exactly the same way. So whether they're aligned by industry vertical or geographical territory, make sure they are aligned and incentivized in a way that sales and success should work with each other. And this goes back to something I spoke about earlier. My biggest learning has been that in subscription SaaS, there is no such thing as post-sales. There's the first sale, the next 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 sale. And if you are aligning people to say, well, we sell, and then I just raise a ticket and then I don't know what happens. Uh, that's bad. That's a hard handover. That's saying that your job was complete a contract signature, but you sell subscription. Your job is not complete a contract signature. So whether it's the original seller or a new seller, an account manager, for example, you've got to be part of the sales motion. One, as a differentiator, it never ceases to amaze me how few sales pitch decks actually talk about all the skill you're going to give the customer for free to help them be successful, <laughs> right? I don't know a single customer in the world where if you said, hey, if you buy our product, would you be interested in um, faster time to value, less effort on your part and minimal risk, you know? I don't know a single customer that's going to say, no, I'm not interested in that, mm. right? We're going to give you that for free. So integration into the sales cycle is not just being introduced to the customer at the right time, pre-planning. It's actually pitching success as a, as a huge differentiator. And the reason you also want to be part of the sales motion is something that I call the buyer and deployer gap, right? Sellers sell to a buyer, someone up here. Now, if you're listening, I do apologize. My hand is just like above my head, right? But when you are actually working with deploying and onboarding the software, you're doing that with a bunch of people much lower down the organizational chart. They're the deployers. The buyer is up here, C-suite, VP, strategic direction of company, we're going to buy your product. The deployer is down here somewhere, the admin, the IT person, the end user. And if CS does not have a relationship with the original buyer, when things go wrong with the deployer, they stop turning up to calls. They're not interested. They're not prioritizing your software because they got eight other projects. And by the way, the deployer has always been volunteered to roll out your project, your products on top of their day job, right? Yeah. Uh, you have no recourse to go back to someone of weight internally at that company and go, hey, we need to talk this through with you because you're not seeing the value quicker. How can we help? Because the team's clearly not prioritized, uh, has got other priorities. So you want to be part of the sales motion. So you're closing that buyer deployer gap. Um, people always say to me, Ralph, can you help us build a really good handover motion? I'm like, no, you should not have a handover. The best handover motion is to not have one. When the deal is at 80%, why don't you introduce the CS person to the buyer? <laughs> right? You know, you've done, you're doing the sales discovery. Someone's doing the technical discovery. Let this person do the deployment discovery. Let them understand from the customer. How do you do, how do you roll out software? 
do you have a PMO office? Do you have these technical skills? We're going to need someone on the directory for three weeks. How do we organize that? Oh, you have a seven week change window to get these things approved. You want to do that before you finish closing the sale. Right? Because otherwise you're going to waste the first three or four months trying to figure that out. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah. so that's why you want the integration into the sales motion. And then you want that common territory alignment because really what you want to do is to put people into uh, pods, you know, even if they're virtual pods in a given territory or a given industry segment, there's a seller, there's a technical person, there's a success person, and they have the same book of business because you really want them to work together as though they are the founders and CEOs of that patch. Uh, what are we going to prioritize? What are we going to go after? What's at risk that we need to ameliorate? And that's why you need to give them incentives, compensation that incents them to work with each other. So if I'm a seller and you know I want all my sales guys to focus on closing new logos, so I'm going to make 90% of their comp based on closing new logos, but I want them to make sure that customer is going to set up for fast value so we can sell them more. Well, well Tom, I'm going to give you 10% of your comp to make sure the customer sees value in the first 90 days. Suddenly, your aligned CS person is your best friend because you're like, I got to set this person up to be successful. Otherwise I'm not getting yeah. my money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similarly with the success person, you want to say, well, 90% of your target is to make sure this customer is onboarded and seeing value in 90 days. Your other 10% is helping your sales colleague close the deal, right? Immediately then you've got some alignment, both in territory and incentive that these people should be working with each other. Those are the two most important things I, could, I can share. And I think the final one, and this is increasingly more important, is you've got to have an agreed formal mechanism with product for giving them customer feedback. Because there is often a lot of antagonism between customer teams and product teams. And I think a lot of that comes from just not understanding how to talk to each other. And customer teams and CS leaders are kind of feature request obsessed. Customer wants this feature, customer wants this feature. And from a product person, that's useless. They don't want feature requests. They want problem statements. They want, tell me the business problem that we need to solve because then I can actually assess that against our North Star product strategy because there may be a way of solving that that isn't a feature request. It may be something else. So, so you know, it's that elevator pitch for success, material revenue targets, data and signals, be part of the sales motion, be aligned to sales and incentivize in a meaningful way, have that formal mechanism of product feedback. I think those, and there are many others, but I think those are like the core six that I would say, this is what you should be doing. I love that. I love that. I mean, wow, that's, that's super insightful. I have two more questions before we run out of time. All right. First one, what do I look for in a good customer success person to come and work for whichever company. So when someone's out looking for them, like, yeah, I'm sold. I need this capability. I want to come and get someone in to run it. What characteristics am I looking for in that person? So to run it or to be... Mm. Execute it, to deploy it, to make it happen day to day. Yeah, so I think the, um, the interesting thing is, again, I wrote about this recently. You have a phenomenon in startups, which I describe as builders versus scalers. So what often happens is a founder, quite understandably, will get to a gap in their domain experience, sales or success or something. And they go, well, I have a gap here. I'll go talk to my peers. I'll go talk to my investors. And generally, the answer is some form of go and hire the most senior person you can find. 
right? So I know I'll go to Salesforce or Demandware and go and hire an SVP of success. And that will solve my problem because that person knows exactly what to do. That instinct is kind of, I understand it, but it's not always the right one. In a, and actually it's very rarely the right one in an early stage company because those people, those tenured executives, they're scalers. So their superpower is to take something that's largely understood, refine it, and then amplify it. And if you do not know yet what it takes to make a customer successful or mm. what engagements we should be doing and not doing, they are not best placed to figure that out. So what they'll do, and I'm sure your listeners have seen this from time and time again, you see this in sales a lot too, they'll come in and go, oh, okay, you actually haven't got anything. Uh, well, I've been 15 years removed from the coalface. So what I'll do is I'll hire back most of my old team because they know how to do that, right? So then what happens is they hire four or five of their key people from their previous roles. They're all good people. But the problem then gets compounded because they're like, well, we don't know what to do. And we have a massive bias to our former leader's playbook. So we're just going to double down on that playbook. And if you're lucky, 60% of that playbook is going to apply to you. About 40% of it isn't. So what I always say is to founders, don't hire a scaler too early, hire a builder. And what a builder is, is someone whose experience is probably not measured in decades. It's probably measured in years. And they're someone who's maybe a manager or a team lead, or maybe uh, you know on the cusp of management. They're often a player manager, so they're managing a team of success people, and they also have key accounts themselves. And they may have been in two or three businesses similar to yours, maybe at slightly later stages, but they've got a lot of lateral experience because what they'll tend to do is come in and go, okay, I understand the bare bones of what makes a success motion. But what I need to do is roll up my sleeves, go and work with some customers and figure out the 40% that is unique to this company. And they'll build you that version one. Now, if that person's any good and they're, they're you know, experienced and developed, you've got your inbuilt head of or VP of success or sales right there. Or if they've got a ways to go and the business starts to scale, go and hire that scaler and make part of that scaler's role. I want you to develop this person into the next generation of leadership because they're great, right? So I think... That's a very broad answer to your question about, but I think it's really important to frame the answer is you first got to decide, do I need a scaler or do I need a builder? Uh, that's question number one. After that, I think you really need to look for people who have got a really strong track record of working with customers. They don't have to be in customer success. They could have been in sales. Uh, you know, They could have been in account management. They could have been in renewals. But someone who actually working with customers is not a new thing. You know, someone in a back office who's never actually engaged with customers, that's too steep a learning curve for your startup, right? So that's the first thing. I think you need people who um, are very good communicators. And by that, I mean people who are able to distill potentially very complicated topics into simple, digestible, understandable, uh, in understandable ways. And they're very good communicators in multiple mediums, not just on the phone, not just presenting their written skills. Uh, I, you know, the last team I, I put together were, they were all so great that they made my life really easy. But one of the main things I helped them on was they were like, I need to send this message to a customer. Can you review it for me? And I'd write shorter, shorter, shorter and help them rewrite it. <laughs> right? Because I go, if they're on a phone and if they have to scroll, they're not going to read it. Let's get this down to four lines or something. So, you know, being able to communicate in different formats and at different levels, adjusting your communication style. You want people who are organized, so people who know how to prioritize work in a systematic way rather than 
just responding to whoever's shouting the loudest because they have to be intentional about where they spend their time. Um, you need people who are very good, uh, you know, very good at empathy and active listening because a lot of the role is consultative. You want to listen, ask the right questions, step back, process. This is what I heard. What I'm hearing is this. Therefore, let's let's give you a really useful contextualized answer or a set of steps rather than something generic. Um, you need people with good commercial acumen, right? You you want people who, as I always say, think commercially, they just don't act it with the customer because they're pulling the value lever. Uh, you need people who've got a good head around product and technology. Uh, and depending on your solution, there may be a very specific domain or technical skill set they may not need. And that goes back to that thing I said um, about defining your elevator pitch because the elevator pitch is gonna have a strong correlation with what are the skills we bring that accelerate value for the customer. If you're selling a DevOps solution to engineers and none of your CS people are, have been engineers or they are not DevOps, they're gonna have zero credibility with your users and buyers, <laughs> zero. No influence, no credibility. So you have to then make an assessment how much product technical or domain knowledge is required in order to accelerate that value. Some cases it's nothing, our product straightforward, they'll learn it on the job. In other cases, it's very specific. So, you know, I mean, there's a whole ton more competencies and attributes, but those are the ones I think that stick out to me the most uh, as I go through this journey of sort of advising people on what those people might look like. Sold, I love it. All right, last one before we, uh, we wrap up. True or false, you built your own Peloton? Uh, kind of. I built a bike which will mimic a Peloton uh, because I'm basically, one, I'm cheap, but two, I'm a former engineer. So if there's a way to, I'll give you another example, right? We just had this big refurbishment done on the house, have to put up security cameras, did all that myself. And the guy said, oh, well, you'll want to buy the network video recorder. I'm like, how much is that? Because that's 400 quid. And I'm like, that's basically a Raspberry Pi running Linux and a hard drive. I know I can build that myself. So I just built it myself. <laughs> There he is, there's the areas. Yeah. So there is a sort of engineering DNA that I still have, which is if I could probably do it myself, I'll try and do it. I like the intellectual challenge and I'm also a bit cheap. No, I love it. I love it. What a good balance. I love that. Look, Rav, this has been absolutely sensational. I can't thank you enough. It's really opened my eyes, certainly to the value of customer success and how to make it work effectively. I think obviously the ability to, in highlighting who we should be hiring and how to structure that in such a salient way has been super valuable. And look, I really appreciate you taking the time to share this with our audience. So thank you it's very much. It's been my absolute pleasure. And uh, look, I'm super easy to find if anyone Want to get in touch, has questions. Hey, I'd love to chat with you for 20 minutes. Um, I love talking to entrepreneurs, always open to it. So yeah, please don't be shy. And, and, and thanks again for setting the time up today, Tom. It's been great fun.